0: Hello and welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm Professor Drew Dawson of the University of Miami School of Law and the Robert M. Zimmon Resident Scholar for the spring of 2017. This episode is a special presentation produced in collaboration with the National Creditors Bar Association, focusing on the Supreme Court's decision in Midland funding v. Johnson. Our guests today are Lauren Burnett and Nick Wooten. Lauren Burnett co-authored an amicus brief supporting Midland Funding on behalf of the National Creditors Bar Association. She practices law at Barron and Newberger in Florida. Nick Wooten is likewise a leading practitioner in this field as he was the lead attorney for the debtor in the 11th Circuit decision Crawford v. LVNV, which laid the legal foundation for Johnson's case against Midland Funding. Nick Wooten practices consumer law in Chicago, Illinois. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to start by sort of with a broad level statement of the facts and the, and the procedural history of this case, and then I'm going to turn it over to the two of you for your expertise on the arguments on each side and how the court came out, and eventually we'll get to the implications of the court's holding. So as to the facts, in 2014, Midland Funding filed a proof of claim in the Chapter 13 case of Alita Johnson. The proof of claim accurately listed the amount of the debt and the date of the last payment, which was over 10 years before the bankruptcy, well past the applicable six-year statute of limitations. Johnson objected, and the court disallowed the time-barred claim. Johnson then filed an action against Midland Funding in district court, alleging a violation of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, which we'll call the FDCPA or the Act. She lost in the district court, but she prevailed on appeal to the 11th Circuit. The Supreme Court granted a petition for certiorari to consider two questions, whether filing a claim on a stale debt violates the FDCPA, and whether the bankruptcy code precludes the FDCPA in this context. So with that general background, I'm going to turn to you, Lauren. I know you have great familiarity with the arguments raised by Midland Funding. Could you quickly state the argument for the debt collector?
1: Sure. Um, and I think a little bit of background context is helpful Um, Ultimately, the Supreme Court granted certiorari to to resolve a circuit split. Uh, And in this instance, there was actually a three-way split over the question of whether a debtor can maintain a cause of action under the FDCPA where a creditor files a proof of claim on a debt that is time-barred for suit. So in the first camp, you had the Ninth Circuit. Uh, which held that bankruptcy law displaces the FDCPA, so to speak, so that a violation of the bankruptcy code can only be resolved under the bankruptcy code and not under the FDCPA. In the second camp, you have uh, a number of circuits, including the second, the fourth, the seventh, and the eighth. And these circuits allowed FDCPA claims based on actions in bankruptcy generally, but they did not find FDCPA claims on time-barred proofs of claim. And then in the third camp, you have the 11th Circuit, which started with the Crawford case, which held that filing a proof of claim on a debt that is time-barred for suit is essentially tantamount to filing a time-barred lawsuit and is, just a, is, is a violation of the FDCPA. So the Supreme Court was tasked with looking at two questions. Uh, and the first was whether filing an accurate proof of claim for a stale debt violated the FDCPA The second was whether the bankruptcy code precluded application of the FTCPA to the filing of an accurate proof of claim for a stale debt. And what Midland Funding argued here uh, was multifaceted. First, a claim, as defined by the bankruptcy code, includes debts that are time barred for suit. There's nothing in the language of the code that renders claims, claims only if they are enforceable. Midland also argued that the bankruptcy code contains a multitude of protections for the debtor so that it wasn't um, an accurate comparison to draw between the filing of a proof of claim and the filing of a lawsuit. And examples uh, that, that were offered to the court that were adopted by the majority opinion were things such as the appointment of a Chapter 13 trustee who has a fiduciary obligation to review and object uh... to inappropriate proofs of claim uh... the fact that debtors themselves may object to proofs of claim as can their counsel uh... and the procedure set forth in the bankruptcy code uh... to enable the court to afford more protections to a chapter thirteen debtor than are available to a traditional consumer in the civil litigation context and finally midland argued that any objections to proofs of claim on the basis that they are untimely is a matter addressed by the bankruptcy code Rather than by the FDCPA. And so the court should apply the code code only and not the FDCPA in resolving these issues.
0: Great. Thank you for that summary. And now I'd like to turn to you, Nick, if you could sort of do the same thing, but from the debtor's point of view.
2: Well, uh, thank you, Professor. And and most of the people who know me, which probably aren't that many of your crowd because I do a lot of consumer work, uh, you know, they. Understand that I I was sort of the author of the Crawford opinion and the theory. And, you know, I I sort of parted ways with uh, the Consumer Council in this case on a couple of points. Um, From from my perspective, there were uh, a couple of issues that came up in the arguments that I thought really were red herring type arguments that I think ultimately the Supreme Court uh, saw them for that particular point. You know, obviously, it's with deep regret that I oppose CERT and Crawford. Uh, Obviously, I I would have preferred to have argued this issue myself and probably should have pushed for it to be heard when Crawford was decided. Uh, Because I think the problem, from my perspective as a consumer lawyer, is that the focus was lost in Johnson on what the real point of litigation was. Um, from my perspective, you had professional debt collectors doing something in bankruptcy court that they could do in no other court in America, which is seek payment on a time bar debt. Every court who has ruled on that issue has is found against the industry. And I thought that it was just a cry shame that, you know, people who were at their most financially vulnerable in bankruptcy were being exploited uh, by this process where claims that were You know, for instance, Crawford, that claim was 13 years old since the last payment. But we were seeing claims 10, 15, 20 years old. And I'm not talking about one or two. On average, uh, in the Middle District of Alabama, where I was practicing uh, at the time, we would see five to 10 of these claims per Chapter 13 filing. And when I described it as a deluge to the 11th Circuit, I was not exaggerating. It it was uh, uncommon not to see at least five of these types of claims or more in any consumer filing. And so my focus was on debt collector conduct. And I think here we, we got into Johnson's argument became uh, more about this issue of whether a claim is a claim if it's unenforceable. Uh, that was one point that, that I thought was uh, uh, a big point of emphasis for the consumer And then also another point that I thought uh, probably strayed from the conduct of the defendants or the debt collectors versus the the issue in play was this discussion about, uh, you know, whether or not we were addressing uh, true procedural protections for consumers in the bankruptcy versus whether or not debt collectors were simply acting against what was known to be the law
0: at that time. Well, that's great. Now we've sort of got the facts of this case laid out, its procedural history, the arguments on each side. Well, on May 17, as we know, the court issued its ruling in this case. And uh, Lauren, I'd like to turn to you, if you could uh, both tell us the holding of the case. Justice Breyer authored this opinion, and uh, what was the the holding? Sure.
1: Actually, that's, that's a, a more important question than you think. Um, th- the holding was ultimately that Midland's filing of a proof of claim that on its face indicates that it is time barred for suit does not fall within the scope of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. It's not false, deceptive, or misleading, and it's not unfair or unconscionable. And I emphasize the on its face bit because, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a few, I think that the dissent simply assumes that um, these creditors that are filing uh, proofs of claim on debts that are time-barred for suit are trying to sneak one past the trustee and the court by slipping in um, uh, a proof of claim that they shouldn't have been filing, when in fact in this case, uh, as Justice Breyer observed, Midland's proof of claim put right out front that the last payment on this account was, I think, 10 years prior to the filing of the proof, uh, and Alabama statute of limitations was six years. So this was a facially obvious time-barred debt, and I think that that's an important point uh, as we go through the holding. But ultimately, um, the majority explained and, and, and agreed with Midland Funding that a claim as defined by the bankruptcy code includes debts that are time-barred for suit. They looked to the definition of claim, which is a right to payment, Um, And they rejected this idea that in order to be a claim, the claim must be enforceable. That word is absent from the definition, and they declined to read that in. Um, They also held, and I found this interesting as well, um, that whether something is misleading depends on the legal sophistication of the audience. And we who defend debt collection lawsuits are all familiar With the least sophisticated consumer standard. And this language is a little bit different because the court took into consideration that in the context of filing a proof of claim in a Chapter 13 bankruptcy, the audience at issue includes the Chapter 13 trustee. And the court noted that the Chapter 13 trustee is likely to understand that a claim is simply a statement that a creditor has a right to repayment. It is not a false deceptive or misleading statement that a creditor has the right to enforce a debt in court. The question of whether a time barred proof of claim is unfair or unconscionable was a little bit more difficult for the court to grapple with, but Justice Breyer ultimately was uh, noted and the majority was persuaded by the argument that bankruptcy is a different process than civil litigation. Bankruptcy is initiated by the debtor. It is not initiated by a creditor like a civil collection matter. Um, the bankruptcy process has safeguards built into it through the rules of bankruptcy procedure. Uh, the claims adjudication process is strictly regulated by the bankruptcy code itself. The debtor actually has, under, under most circumstances anyway, not one but two levels of protection. Uh, again, they are represented by counsel. Mo- I, and I recognize that there are, pro se, Chapter 13 debtors out there. Um, but most are represented by counsel who are trained and capable of objecting to time barred proofs of claim or claims that they find are inappropriate. And beyond that threshold, the Chapter 13, again, has the fiduciary obligation to review and object to any objectionable proofs of claim. Um, and, and that trustee would know to assert a statute of limitations defense. Um, And and the court included uh, an important discussion, I think, of the fact that statute of limitations is an affirmative defense to be asserted by an individual in the position of the defendant and not something to be preemptively addressed at the time a claim is filed. Um, And so ultimately the court sided with the majority of, of Midland's arguments but declined to reach the question of whether or not uh, the bankruptcy code preempts or precludes the FDCPA. So that question remains unanswered.
0: Great. And I just want to, I'm going to turn to you, Nick, in just a minute to get your take on this, but I want to make sure we clarify. And I think your last point, Lauren, is one worth highlighting. You know, the, the court says that the conduct here does not fall within the scope of any of the Five relevant words of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. It's not false, deceptive, misleading, unconscionable, or unfair. But it doesn't go so far as to say that the conduct falls outside the scope of the FDCPA broadly. That is to say that the FDCPA still does apply in bankruptcy cases.
1: Well, yes and no. Okay. Um, sure. So you're absolutely right. The court held that this specific conduct is not... False, deceptive, misleading, unfair, or unconscionable. But I think we need to look at two points here. And the first is the conduct at issue. And again, this opinion addresses accurate proofs of claim that are nonetheless no longer ripe for suit. So, in other words, everything about the proof of claim was accurate. So, this opinion is not going to help proofs of claim that contain inaccuracies. And I, as a defense attorney, would argue that those have to be material inaccuracies in order to be actionable under the FDCPA. But that's another discussion for another day. So we start with the premise that the proof of claim itself was accurate as it was in this case. Then what the court holds is that this specific conduct at issue does not run afoul of sections E or F of the FDCPA. But the court really doesn't Solve what I think is one of the questions that, that started this whole process, which is whether the FDCPA applies or does not apply to disputes that arise in bankruptcy. I think that, um, that that circuit split remains unresolved. And I also think that that question wasn't necessarily placed squarely in front of the court, even though the second question that they reviewed... Concerned preclusion, but it only did so in the context of proof of claim. So I, you are correct in that in those circuits where um, debtors can raise claims under the FDCPA arising from the bankruptcy context, um, that remains unchanged by this
0: holding. Great, thank you for that. And we'll we'll come back to some of the what are the consequences of this open-ended ruling in just a little bit. But first, I want to give Nick a chance to point out any flaws that he might note to end Justice Breyer's opinion.
2: Well, you know, obviously I, I fall in line with the dissent in this case. I, I thought Justice Sotomayor did an excellent job of explaining why this conduct is problematic in the real world. Um, you know, as a trial lawyer, uh, I often hear people talk about uh sort of the idea that appellate courts are sometimes detached from the reality of day-to-day practice, and I think that this opinion manifests that pretty strongly, um, Because it, it really does not take into account the tremendous stress that's placed on the system, including trustees, by this problem. And in my experience, no one uh, who was not part of the debt collection industry, there was no one out there who didn't see this issue as a problem. Um, And when Crawford was decided, I spoke to my trustees uh, in the middle district of Alabama about what it would take for the trustee to review each claim. And what I was told was that the staffing requirements for them to go in and review each claim would make chapter 13 cost prohibitive. Uh, It will require them to increase staff four to tenfold, depending on uh, the level of filings, to be able to put on lawyers and staff to do nothing but review claims. And so they left it to debtors' attorneys, who oftentimes address these issues uh, by the development of what we call a pot plan, which is basically just to pay an amount into the bankruptcy court and ignore the claims, and so you basically had a feeding frenzy where these claims weren't being objected to because it was time-consuming and costly for debtors' attorneys who only get paid for confirming the plan uh, and, and the consumer actually making payments. They, they don't get paid for objecting to claims. And so they were just simply letting them in, and then the automatic uh, you know, approval process of the code was kicking in, and, and these claims were getting paid. And so, you know, the real people who are being cheated worse than anyone are the creditors who had non-time-barred claims who were having to share a limited fund with, uh, you know, people who were filing time-barred claims. And it it was creating a burden, and there was also this argument that cases that didn't complete and get a discharge might possibly be reviving the statute of limitations, against on these stale debts by paying some small amount towards them in the bankruptcy. So there were a number of issues there that are just not recognized in the majority opinion. It was pretty clear to me from reading the transcript of the arguments and listening to the oral arguments that where this case went off the rails with the majority was when the discussion came down to whether this case was solely about the statute of limitations or if it was relevant to other affirmative defenses. And if you go back to the transcript, the oral arguments, you hear sort of the alarm that this is uh, uh, falling into opening some can of worms in the bankruptcy process. Again, that was not reality. In the 11th Circuit, once Crawford was decided, this issue uh, was mooted practically overnight. People quit filing these claims filings cleaned up, claims were withdrawn, there was a brief burst of litigation, very nominal, and this problem basically cleared itself up in the time that Crawford was, uh, you know, the cert petition was being considered for Crawford. Um, In other parts of the country where I also practiced and assisted other consumer lawyers where they had not had a bright line ruling on this point, it was still... Mayhem It was still a deluge of filings in every case. and uh, once this issue started coming to to rack and some of the other appellate courts and some of the decisions started going contrary to Crawford, then that problem only accelerated. the The majority opinion doesn't address this issue or why it was a problem or why the system was overwhelmed with these these claims, and it does acknowledge basically the structural weaknesses of the system that were just not designed to address this type of volume uh, on on claims that, quite frankly, uh, you you could not uh, pursue in any other court, and I think admittedly so by the industry. Um, At least it was conceded in Crawford that had they sought to to file suit on the debt that was made the subject of the claim in Crawford, uh, they would have violated the FTCPA. So uh, Justice Breyer's opinion doesn't acknowledge those issues. Uh, He he does talk about the problem with the the, what if other affirmative defenses are involved. This is a burden shifting thing. It it really uh, should have been made clear that this truly only applied to the statute limitations because the industry already was aware that it could not collect stale debt in any other court in America. And extending that rule to bankruptcy courts was no uh, huge stretch of existing law. It was a logical acknowledgement that bankruptcy court is an actual court and the rules apply and normal law affecting debt collectors should apply to their conduct there as well. Uh, I think the majority opinion leaves open a number of questions we've already started to highlight uh, potentially allowing Uh, some arguments to open up in in bankruptcy court and outside of bankruptcy court, where some of the loose language here could potentially be used to argue that some fairly bright-line rules in existing FDCPA litigation are now subject to review and reconsideration based on on some of the language here. Um, I I do think the court, uh, it's sort of what I, I see as a a uh, sort of a disconnect with the reality of day-to-day bankruptcy practice. Uh, a lot of appellate judges have never been inside of a bankruptcy courtroom and they, they don't know the ins and outs of day-to-day practice. Um, and, and so they don't know the mechanics of how the process works. And one of the other things that bothered me about Johnson or appeal was that it was a, it was a putative class action and, and that was, that was filed in district court. Crawford was an adversary proceeding within the main bankruptcy case, and it was an individual case. And, you know, factorially, one of the things that were important about Crawford was that if there was a recovery, then that money would go into the consumer's bankruptcy to pay other legitimate creditors rather than be some sort of windfall to the debtor. So basically, Crawford, I thought, had established a neat system that worked very well to clean up problems with creditors who were engaged or debt who engaged in this practice. Uh, and Johnson didn't quite have the factual uh, clarity that maybe Crawford would have had if it had gone up on uh, to the Supreme Court to, to kind of refocus some of these things that got lost. Um, with respect to uh, you know, my biggest concerns about the, the, the ultimate holding here was I think what we've already started to hit on, it it didn't really resolve some of the core things we all who practice in this area have questions about. Um, It leaves a lot of things in limbo, and, and definitely I agree with my panelists that we're certainly in a position to say that one of the biggest splits that were out there on this issue really was not addressed in a straightforward fashion. And I think it leaves us um, in, in position to have more uncertainty than we probably should have had given uh, the fact that this case went to the Supreme Court with what what I think most of us thought the issues were.
0: Lauren, I am sure that you are ready to jump in here and respond to some of these points, but I'd like to try to focus right now on the, the last point Nick made, which was the kind of where you ended too, Lauren, which was the court didn't address the second question as far as d- does the bankruptcy code preclude application of the FDCPA. And it leaves open that question, and I want to think about what are some of the implications? What are some of the things left open, and how is this going to impact consumer bankruptcy practice?
1: Well, it, it is a big question, Mark, but I think that if you look into the I opinion, mean, that there is some language that suggests that this court was prepared, although it didn't ultimately take that step, uh, to demonstrate deference to the code. Um, At one point, Justice Breyer says, we do not find in the FDCPA or the bankruptcy code good reason to believe Congress intended an ordinary civil court applying the FDCPA to determine answers to these bankruptcy-related questions. And throughout the opinion, again, as I said earlier, I think that the majority was cognizant of the numerous protections that are available to debtors only in the bankruptcy context that are not available to debtors in the civil litigation context and the importance of those safeguards in the claim adjudication process. And so I think that while ultimately that second question wasn't squarely answered yes or no, the majority opinion gives us a roadmap of the majority's thoughts and tells us how the court may interpret that question at a later date. I have no doubt that this opinion is going to generate additional litigation over these unanswered questions, but I think the ultimate determination may hinge on whether the court expands upon some of the language that they used with respect to, um, the the bankruptcy codes application to bankruptcy matters i want to touch on one thing that nick brought up because i think it's an important point to make and that is this concept of of a debt as being enforceable versus being collectible and i think it's important to look again to the majority opinion which makes a passing reference to statutes in wisconsin and mississippi both of which have extinguishment statutes. And and that is to say that once the statute of limitations on a debt expires, your right to the debt expires as well. Both right and remedy are expired by the passage of the statute of limitations. That wasn't the case in Alabama. In Alabama, if a debt is time barred for suit, that doesn't mean that a creditor no longer has a right to repayment of the debt. And in states across the country, there are opinions reaching that same conclusion that efforts to collect a debt that is time barred for suit do not, in and of themselves, violate the FDCPA. And so, going back to the definition of claim, which is simply a right to repayment, I think that for uh, bankruptcy attorneys in those states that do not have extinguishment statutes, again, A combination of the definition of claim and this opinion reinforces the fact that just because a debt may be time-barred for suit does not mean that that creditor's right to repayment is extinguished. The only thing it cannot do is sue, but it may still collect. And so unless all 50 states are prepared to pass these extinguishment statutes, and again, the the ramifications of that are are for another day, but... um, I don't read this opinion to mean that any debt collector can go and file a proof of claim without regard to anything. I think that in Wisconsin and Mississippi, where there are these extinguishment statutes, that filing a proof of claim on a debt that is time barred for suit would potentially be actionable under the FDCPA because the right to recover that sum of money no longer exists. I
2: say on, on that point. Go ahead, Nick. I, I think this is sort of why I, I felt like it was very important that that this case be about the statute limitations issue, because I, I agree with what Lauren said about what the law is, and certainly with respect to creditor debtor relationships, uh, you can absolutely file suit on time bar debt, and the, and the debtor is required to show. The affirmative defense, the statute of limitations, applies. Now, when you take that into the context of a professional debt collector covered under the Act, you know, in in Alabama, it's been the law since 1987 when Kimber was decided by Judge Meyer Thompson, who's a a great jurist and a great man, uh, that that issue is is resolved. uh, A debt collector cannot file suit on time barred debt. And in that case, it's basically been the bedrock of that principle that sort of is, is every court to review it has adopted that core concept, even in the 48 states that don't have extinguishment statutes. Remember, we're talking about the FDCPA and its relationship to professional debt collectors and consumers, not creditor-debtor relationships, um, original creditors creditors who are not subject to the FDCPA. So, uh That was why Crawford, I think, was successful in the first instance. And I think that was part of what was lost in this case on appeal and at the Supreme Court was the simplicity of that particular rule and the bright line that had existed. And and now, uh, as as Lauren has said, I think you you face a situation, at least from my perspective as a consumer lawyer, I would say we're sort of back to the wild, wild west in the bankruptcy context, in the sense that with this ruling in place, you, you go right back to, you know, the, the whatever claim you file, it's on it's on the consumer and their lawyer to determine if there's an objection to it. Otherwise, you're going to get paid on it, and and I suspect that the companies who have profited from that business model. Uh, Well, actually, I know it. I already saw it from the the files that we monitored for bankruptcy lawyers back in Alabama. I took a gander at a couple of those before we did the seminar, and there was already claims flying back in on debt that was facially time-barred since Johnson was announced. So the process has already begun again, and we're right back to where we were pre-Crawford. And I, and I do think, based on the, the holding in Johnson, that, you know, uh, debt collectors are well within their rights to do so. And I, I do think it's a sort of a bitter defeat for consumers because it, it is rare to have such unity and support on a consumer position at the Supreme Court and, and then lose uh, in this manner.
0: Go ahead, Lauren.
1: I have to clarify just one thing that Nick brought up about Kimber, which is that Kimber holds that filing a lawsuit on a known time-barred debt violates the FDCPA. That's a really important point. I don't think that the Johnson decision is going to open floodgates for the filing of known time-barred lawsuits in the civil context because Kimber doesn't draw a bright line holding that a time-barred debt generates an FDCPA lawsuit. It is only if the attorney or debt collector knows or should know that the lawsuit is time-barred and it's filed anyway that there is room for an FTCPA violation. So I, I, I don't see it as, in, in, in as stark terms as Nick does, but we'll certainly see what happens uh, as this opinion is digested and, and applied to cases.
0: Well, we're nearing the end of our session here. Before we close, I want to ask you each if you have any concluding remarks you'd like to make.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, you know, guys, from my perspective, I mean, it really, I I, I mean, I, honestly, when I listen to the transcript and, and. I mean, listened to the audio and read the transcript. I mean, I, I was a little nauseated about the, the, the questions about does it apply to every defense? Does it only apply to the statute limitations? Aren't some other lawyers going to try to expand this? I, I really think the case went off the rails right there. And I, I told everybody that I was close to at that moment that I, I didn't feel good about this because I You know, for me, that was the place in the 11th Circuit where I jumped up and down and screamed that this was purely only about statute of limitations. It's about taking this bright line that exists everywhere else and applying it in this bankruptcy context to alleviate what is a systemic problem. And I think I described it as a blowhole in the coverage of the FDCPA to debt collector conduct. And, you know... It was well received because I think it was logical and it was narrow and it made sense. You shouldn't be able to do something in the in the bankruptcy courts. You can't do anywhere else if you're a debt collector. Um, and and, and I, between that not being emphasized in in front of Justice Breyer and then Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts had some follow-ups that were more pointed on that issue uh, that were I didn't think were handled well either. Uh, and then you couple that with this sort of red herring argument about enforceable or unenforceable. You know, I, I totally agree with Lauren. I, I see no, there is no issue in a debtor-creditor relationship with a creditor requesting payment or time bar debt. The only reason that it's a problem in our consumer law context is because the case law has developed saying that professional debt collectors are not supposed to collect time bar debt. And I realize that that's a simplistic not very technical you know, articulation of, of that point, but it, it is fairly well accept, accepted nationally that in litigation it's improper to file suit on time barred debt. Um, and so we end up with a point where the systemic problem that troubled a lot of, of bankruptcy judges and courts and trustees and consumer lawyers and consumers we, we sort of roll the die, or we roll, sort of roll the clock back to that point. Um, and, and for me, it, it is—it's—it's it's, it's frustrating. It's a little bit uh, tough to swallow that it, it got off track on something that really I never thought that the enforceable, unenforceable argument was a great argument, and I, I certainly didn't want to have uh, an argument made that you know you could potentially expand it into complex affirmative defenses like you know for instance collateral or stop or race judicata i mean plenty of lawyers can't even tell you what those concepts are much less could you litigate those as an affirmative defense and make it an FTCPA claim so that that for me i guess was the biggest frustration in, in in how we got to where we are and i do think the folks that that worked this from the, from the creditor side uh did a great job at the supreme court of highlighting their best arguments um and, and were able to steer away from some of their biggest problems uh, effectively and I think that made made it easier for it to come out the way it did. You know other than that I think the only other thing that I would say about some of the language and the opinion let me pull this page up because and I think and I don't think this is really controversial I think Lauren would probably agree with me it, it, it kind of bothered me a little bit uh, because there's a. It, it, I'm looking at single number of pages. It's page nine of Justice Breyer's opinion. Um, there's a quote that said, uh, administratively, it would permit post-bankruptcy litigation in an ordinary civil court concerning a creditor's state of mind, a matter often hard to determine. Um, and, and I thought that was a little bit uh, unusual in the language because we normally talk about, the FTCPA has a strict liability statute. Um, you know, you either violated it, or you didn't. We don't normally talk about the, the creditor state of mind when we talk about the FTCPA. So, I did find that language a little bit, uh, a little bit odd, considering the subject matter. And I don't. And Laura may have a different opinion on that. I, I just thought it was a, it was a little bit. Um, I mean, I, I've been pondering on. That language and the opinion, it just didn't seem to really uh, fit the subject matter to me. I do actually <laughs>
1: have a have a response because I think that it it raises another important point, which wasn't at issue in this case, but again, is something that a lot of litigators on frankly on on both sides of the disease, uh and a lot of courts simply assume, which is that the FDCPA is a strict liability statute. There are portions of the act that are certainly strict liability, but state of mind absolutely is part of the analysis, depending on what type of claim you're bringing. And if you look at something like Section 1692D, um, 1692D5, as one example, prohibits a debt collector from causing a telephone to ring with the intent to annoy, abuse, or harass any person at the number called. Intent is written right into the statute, and it's something that uh, the, the court has to take into consideration when determining whether or not a violation has occurred. It's something that a fact finder needs to weigh in determining whether a volume of calls is harassing, for example. So I think that you know there are, there's a lot of language that has woven its way into FDCPA cases, and the strict liability nature of the statute is one of them. But the language of the statute itself shows that it's not strictly strict liability. And so I think that Justice Breyer actually makes an important point, because, again, in the civil litigation context, filing a lawsuit on a a claim that is time-barred for suit is really only a violation if the creditor knows or should know that the claim is time-barred. And so state of mind is inherent in that analysis and I think it was an important thing for Justice Breyer to raise in that it reminds us that the FDCPA is not always a strict liability statute, and sometimes state of mind matters.
2: And I I think I understand your position there. I can't say that I disagree with it. I, I think my response would be that most of the FDCPA litigation, at least what I see and what I feel like is the most solid, is typically dealing with these types of strict liability type constructions versus the state of mind thing because you know, honestly if you're in state of mind a lot of times you're traveling in what I consider to be unfair and deceptive action practices territory where state of mind is a bigger factor and something is in play more than a thousand dollars in statutory damages and you know that that scenario um but you're right. You're absolutely correct. There are certain portions of the act that are are not completely strict liability. They're just not the central focus of most FDCPA litigation, I think.
0: Well, listen, I know we could go on a long time about this, but we're at, at the end of our time here. One thing I think we could agree on is that the Supreme Court's decision did not settle this field and that we can expect a lot more litigation coming up. Uh, I want to thank you both again at this point for joining us today and for sharing your expertise. Thank
1: you for having us.
0: And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Please remember that you can access ABI's archive of over 200 podcast episodes in the ABI online newsroom. Until next time, this is Drew Dawson, and thank you for listening to this special edition of ABI Podcast.